Want to learn how to leverage your marketing to get clients on repeat? Charge a fee that leaves you with money in your pocket even after you've finished paying your bills? And finally, stop working with the clients that you've long outgrown? Liberated Business is a transformational program that combines group and one-on-one work so you get the best results possible. This differs from every other program out there because it helps you make money while supporting your joy and liberation throughout your entrepreneurial journey. Liberated Business starts this June and runs through November, and enrollment is open now. Visit thebadtherapist.coach liberatedbusiness to get all of the details and sign up. DM me on Instagram at thebadtherapist with any questions or to learn more. I cannot wait to get started with you. But I never would have done that if I, number one, wasn't committed to being my authentic self in the room and in my life, and also trusted that I had something to say. So I think that's another big part of it is you have something to say. You have something that's important to share with the world. And you are not serving anybody by making yourself smaller and not saying that thing, whatever your thing is, to as many humans as possible. Hey there, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, and today we are talking to special guest, Ray McDaniel, sex therapist, author of the new book, Gender Magic, and public speaker. I first encountered Ray on Instagram and loved how they were showing up and serving their community and, of course, being really authentic online. I love seeing therapists work in communities that they're passionate about and break good therapist conditioning by expanding beyond the one-to-one therapy model. I wanted to bring Ray on to the show to talk about their work as a therapist, serving the queer community, and what it's been like to become a sought-after speaker and author. So welcome, Ray. I'm so happy to have you here. Please just introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, um, I'm Ray. I'm super excited to be here and have this conversation. Um, That was a great introduction to me to add on a little bit to that. I'm a, a gender and sex therapist. I'm based out of Chicago. I'm the founder and owner of a large therapy practice called Practical Audacity that focuses on gender and sex therapy and specifically the queer community within Illinois. Um, I'm also the author of Gender Magic, my first book that came out at the time of this recording about a month ago, available everywhere books are sold. I'm excited to dig into that as well. And then talk quite a bit um, publicly and in all doing consultation for businesses and things like that around transgender, diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and I'm a, a non-binary person myself. Awesome. Thank you for telling us a little bit more about you. I want to ask you like a hundred questions at once. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but let's start with something that is, we'll start with just one, which is how did you become a therapist? How did you get into this field? I love asking therapists this question because we all have such uh, usually pretty rich stories for how this came to be. So I, I want to hear yours. Yeah. So I was in undergrad. I had no idea really what I wanted to do, or rather I thought I was going to do one thing and that wasn't resonating with me. And so I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? I started taking psychology classes, just the required ones, and fell in love with it. I understood it. It was super interesting to me. And I decided that I wanted to be a therapist after taking a few of those classes versus being in academia uh, exclusively or doing research work. Along the same time, and to give you background, I grew up in a very, very religious home. I'm not religious at all anymore. But the college that I went to was also very small and conservative and religious. Yeah. And I had made friends with the theater kids on campus who were the only kind of out-ish gay kids on campus. And in that environment, you could be expelled if the wrong person found out that you were gay. I'm a queer person as well, but I wasn't out at the time. So I was identifying as straight at the time. I had all these friends who were members of the LGBTQ community, and it didn't make sense to me how they were being treated at this university. I saw them struggle with identity and relationships and, and sex and their families and all of these things. So I decided I wanted to be a therapist specifically to work with the LGBTQ population. So I escaped uh, the Deep South and, and ran away to Chicago, started grad school there with this intention. And that was really the, the start of my career path down therapy lane. I um, immediately, as soon as I could, got a job at an LGBTQ counseling practice and have really just expanded that to really focus on um, working with trans folks, working with sex and relationships, working with identity in the, the 10 plus years that I've been a therapist since. Amazing. I love hearing that. It sounds like there was this really just clear motivation. I think some of us have more kind of like winding stories, but it sounds mm -hmm. like from the very start, there's been this sudden awareness that like therapy is an option. This is a career path. And then immediately this population that you're super passionate about serving because they were the, your friends and they were also you, you know, uh -huh. maybe at first though, you didn't realize it. And like, that just, it's incredible to see how over 10 years, this has really grown. Absolutely. And I think along the way too, this little inkling started probably pre-grad school a little bit, but really solidified in grad school of wanting to run a business, which was really different than a lot of my peers. You know, I remember being in a career counseling class and doing the, the Myers-Briggs and whatnot, and mine always landed completely opposite from most everybody else's. And in processing that, I really realized that I had some natural strengths when it came to, to business and running a business. And that also shaped quite a bit of, of my career path and where I am now. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I do think that there is a tendency in our field as therapists to 
uh, really not be interested in business, or even if we might actually be interested in business, it's not cool. Like it's not Mm -hmm. really the thing to do. You might be judged by your peers. You might be judged by your professors and supervisors who could say things like, this isn't really the career path for you. If you're like interested in business or making money, we're here to help people as if those two things are mutually exclusive. And (laughs) as you know, from looking at my work, like I really try to dissect that. I don't believe that's true, but that was definitely something I had to unpack. When I look back early on in my life, there were always these kind of entrepreneurial tendencies, um, but I don't think I felt like it was okay to really pursue that. It took a while for me to feel like that was all right. And so I'm curious for you, can you tell us a bit about your entrepreneurial journey and what it was, what it's been like for you to run a business? Yeah. So if you want to go way, way back, I think similar to you, there's these inklings of entrepreneurship throughout my entire life, including when I was about eight and had a quote unquote business, right? Doing airbrush t-shirts that I made my friend's parents buy. I had a P&L in everything. you still have these? I don't. I really wish I did. But I okay. don't. Your uh, next like merch is like you doing airbrush oh gosh, gender yes. magic t-shirts. I'll buy done, one. <laughs> done. I'm so glad that we just made that connection. Uh, so th- it's always been a part of me. And I was that, you know, 18, 19 year old who was reading Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, you know? And so I was always kind of voraciously consuming these um, books and podcasts and different education about business and was so fascinated by it. But like you're saying, definitely got and still at times get messages about, you know, well, we're in this field to, to help people and not make money as if, like you're saying, those things are mutually exclusive and as if we need to sacrifice ourselves and our well-being in order to help other people. And I never really bought into that. Um, I've always been kind of of the mind that, yes, we want to help people and make therapy accessible and make this information accessible. That is 100% true. But I cannot on my own fix our healthcare system. And I do have to put my own oxygen mask on first as well as advocate for the clinicians who work for me to put on their oxygen mask first as well. Could not have been said better. I think that's something a lot of therapists have a hard time with. We really think that I have to come last. If I'm taking care of me, then I'm actually taking away from somebody else. But I agree with you completely. In order to continue to show up for the people we serve, in in order to continue to make life better for our fellow therapists, we really do have to learn how to take care of ourselves. And now you run a group practice, is that right? I do. Yeah, I have about 17 to 20-ish clinicians who, who work for me there. Great. And it sounds like based on what you just said, I'm guessing that their well-being is of paramount importance to you. And here's my perspective. I'm curious what you'll think of this. My perspective is that oftentimes therapists see group practices as a way to just make more money, but they're already kind of stressed out. They haven't done much of their own work around their money wounds. They might be undercharging, overworking. And then it's from that place that they create a group practice. Now, Clinicians are also in that vortex and that system, and it's not great. People end up resentful. The clinicians aren't being well taken care of. They're not being compensated well. 
The owner is so stressed out to begin with, and now this is just more work on their plate. They're not being compensated enough to make it worth it to them. And it ends up devolving into this really unpleasant experience for the clinicians involved and therefore not a great service to the clients. Mm -hmm. I think there's a very different way to go about this, (laughs) but that's what I see being the standard in group practices. And so I'm always so interested to find group practice owners that are actually doing it differently, that that aren't creating a group practice more from like a place of scarcity, but who have really done their own work in their own solo practices and then create a group practice out of that abundance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how it went. You know, I started the practice because I wanted, because I had a vision, because I had a vision of creating a space that served queer folks really well, that served trans folks really well, that served, um, therapy and information about sex and relationships really well. And I wanted to create it from that place of abundance. And so I started the practice not because I was hurting for clients, but because I had too many. My private practice when it was just me started out with 18 clients on day one. Um, And it really just expanded exponentially from there from like the five and a half years ago that that I started it. So yeah, it is, I will not sit here and say that I have it all figured out, that everybody is perfectly happy at my practice all the time, that, you know, I have the the secret sauce and the formula, but I will say that it was created from abundance and me and my leadership team are doing everything that we can to stumble and fumble our, our way to really enacting that vision that we want, which is not only really incredible client care, but also a practice that really cares for our clinicians um, and holds that tension well of, you know, and we are an insurance practice. We take one insurance, like insurance rates haven't changed significantly in 10 years and inflation has changed and the landscape has changed. So what does that mean for our group practice don't quite know yet, but we are figuring it out and really putting so much focus on how do we take care of our clinicians first and make sure that they are taken care of so that they can serve their clients from a place of abundance as well and not being burned out and stressed out all the time to the very best of our ability. Absolutely. I mean, it's really complex running a group practice. I think, again, many therapists go into it with in a way that the concept of passive income also gets approached, there's kind of like this idea of like passive income, I'll create a mm-hmm. course and then like I'll just start making more money or like, oh, if I just like hire another clinician, I'll just start making more money. But like what so many people don't realize is that the level of complexity in the business increases so much. And it's not that that's not a great avenue to go down. It's not like a magic bullet. It's not. It's no. There's a lot to learn here. And when you're already coming from a place of scarcity, that can create a lot of undue challenges. I will say this, the concept of a group practice as passive income is laughable. Like it is oh. The opposite <laughs> totally. of passive income. It is so complex, like you said, and the bigger you get, the more complex it gets. Truly. And I think, you know, my experience of being in grad school and both of myself and of my peers is like, we are some like ushy gushy people. Like we're feeling Mm -hmm. all the time. We have so many opinions. (laughs) Like 
We were a handful. I know that about my cohort. And so it's like, feelings are going to be a part of this. It's not just a business. It's a business that involves a bunch of therapists and um, people who are doing really intense work. And so it's not a set it and forget it sort of thing. It does take a certain level of constant maintenance. Um, and you have quite a large group practice. You said, I think, 17 mm-hmm. or 18 clinicians. Um, yep. So you're serving a lot of clients as well. So the level of complexity is pretty big. Now, granted, that doesn't mean every group practice needs to be 17 or 18 clinicians. And you probably didn't start that way. I'm imagining you probably no. started with a few, maybe even yeah. just one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Start out with one. And within the first year, we had five, but it's grown just steadily since then. Yeah. Nice. So switching gears a little bit to talk about how you present yourself online, how you present your business online, seems like it requires a lot of work too. It's very polished. You're very active. Uh, it's very cohesive. And I'm curious, like how that plays into your work. Like, how do you manage that? What is your approach to that? Such a, a good, juicy and, and huge question. So I appreciate you saying it. it's polished and consistent. I've definitely worked a long time to get there. And part of that work is also hiring the right people. So I'm not in there creating all my graphics myself. I have people that, well, one person that <laughs> helps me with that, who's really amazing. It has been many years, you know, I've been in this field since about 2013. So it's been many years of very slowly developing what my brand looks like and feels like. It's not a um, one-time decision of this is what I'm doing. It, it's a constant evolution. And managing that, it really helps to have that team member on board who is able to take my book, uh, Gender Magic, and other stuff that I've already put out there and create content from that and also help me to brainstorm and really be a thought partner on what sort of videos, what sort of content um, from my work do we want to be putting out there. So can't recommend having a a really solid team in place for that more. That has been so important for me. Another thing, and you've alluded to this, but maybe we can dig into it a little bit, is that I'm really open online. I talk a lot about my life. I talk about very personal things and personal stories on Instagram and, and online in general. And that is quite different from a lot of therapists and what they're comfortable with. And my understanding of ethical disclosure and what that looks like either with directly my clients or kind of in general, my clients happen upon my Instagram page has definitely developed over the years. And I've come to this place, which is in session, the focus is on the client. I'm not going to be sharing a ton about my life. I'm not going to be telling stories uh, about my life. It is focused on them. However, outside of that space, I have given myself permission to be a full human and to be that human out loud on the interwebs. And that has, instead of creating a lot of maybe strange complexity for clients or things that we need to deeply process and session, it has been the greatest marketing tool 
and such a rapport builder for any client that we have had this conversation. A lot of people come to me because they know who I am. And again, within that therapy space, that's not the focus. It's not on me, but they feel comfortable and safe with me because I have shared these things online. And then in gender magic, which is a whole other level of sharing personal things about myself, including a story about being at a dungeon and watching a dinosaur have an orgasm. So I'll just like leave that tidbit there. But a lot of super personal stuff. Um, One of my rules of thumb there has been that I always share things about my life that are therapeutic and not therapy. So I'm never sharing stuff that feels so raw that I am just kind of emotionally exploding on the internet. It's stuff that I have talked about, that I have processed, uh, that I've talked with my therapist about, that I've been able to sit with before I share my reflection about it. And it is always from a place of, here is my story, here is how it can help you. It is still, when I share that, not about me. It is about allowing a mirror to happen for any anybody that happens to be consuming my work. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think for folks listening, that's that's such helpful guidance around, okay, I'm a part of the community I serve, which I think any really successful therapist I can think of fits that description. Mm-hmm. And it's been so interesting since graduate school to watch my friends and I kind of go off into our own practices. And every single one is specializing in something that they identify with. And so we really are when we're marketing, we're like, okay, well, obviously I have tons to say about this, like from my personal perspective. And so it's like, what to do with all of that? Is that actually okay? And I love the framework that you just provided around how do I go out and share my experience? You said, um, you know, sharing content, sharing information that's therapeutic and not therapy. And that reminds me of another bit of wisdom, another way of putting that that I've heard, which is sharing from the scar and not the wound. Yep, exactly. Like when it's really raw, when you're still bleeding, when you're in the midst of it and there isn't uh, enough perspective, there's not enough distance, enough healing, enough regulation to have that. That's not the place to share, you know, at least not uh, generally in your professional page. That's the thing to take to your therapist or take to your friends or take to your community. But when you've gotten enough resolution to be able to share some wisdom about how you moved through that experience, that can be such a powerful thing to share with the general public. And like you said, a fantastic marketing tool. Uh, It makes you really, um, what is the word I'm looking for? not believable, but like trustworthy. It instills Mm -hmm. trust that people are like, yeah, you've been through this too. You get me. And it makes it so much easier for someone to feel like they can open up to you, like you're the right therapist for them. Now, I would never say that therapists have to share, right? I think, you know, you're someone who feels comfortable sharing. I think I'm someone who generally feels more comfortable sharing, but there are probably going to be some people who don't. And I would say like, that's also fine. You don't have to share. Absolutely. But we're here to tell you that if you want to, you can. And here's a way that you can do that. Here's a way that you can put up some guardrails so that if you're ever wondering, should I or shouldn't I, this is a kind of litmus test you can take yourself through. Yep, exactly. So well said. Yeah. 
And so in your practice, do the individual therapists who work for you also have their own presences? Because you were saying this is so helpful for the clients who come to work for you. And I'm wondering, is this kind of a a norm that you've created within your group practice for the other clinicians who work with you? We don't require that anybody do that. Um, If they have their own page, that's totally fine. But most of what we do is bring in some of their personal identities as much as they're comfortable sharing into their bios. So when we are promoting them, we'll do um, a carousel on, you know, multiple photos on Instagram that has a little, some quotes from them that has a little bit more about who they are. And that's primarily the way that we bring it into outward facing marketing. And we talk a lot within our practice about what does it mean to be a part of the communities that we're serving? You know, most of our clinicians identify somewhere along the spectrum of the people that that we are also serving in the queer community. And so we we have a lot of discussions about disclosures and what happens when you inevitably run into your clients at a dance party or wherever. Uh, so it's a part of our discussion internally more than it is an, an external focus. Got it. I also want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier around how you live your life. I remember... <laughs> I remember having moments throughout my career as a therapist where there was a lot of fear around how we would move through life publicly because of the impact that might have on my clients. I remember angsting over one time when I cut my hair, it was very long like it is now, and then I cut it all off. And I remember just thinking and talking to my supervisor, what are my clients going to think? How will I explain this to them? What if they ask questions? It was a deeply personal reason, blah, 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 blah. No one cared, you know? Uh, No one cared at all. One person complimented it twice and no one else mentioned it. And I think (laughs) there is so much fear that we have around being ourselves in a public space. Um, A lot of us can feel like our lives have to get smaller once we enter the field because we're not just therapists in the room. We feel like we have to be therapists all the time. And I even read a text uh, before I went to grad school that was given to me by a mentor. It was one of her graduate school textbooks, but it described being a therapist as a lifestyle. And that really, I took that to heart. I was really young and I was working in community mental health and I was really hungry for how to do my job, looking for any information that would guide me. And I interpreted that as like, I'm on all the time. When I'm in the seat, I'm on. When I'm in my apartment, I'm on. When I'm out with my friends, And I did. (laughs) Yeah, I did live in the community that I served. My friends who wouldn't end up getting assigned to me would come into the clinic where I worked and I'd be like, hey, what's up in the lobby? So like, it was kind of a tricky thing. And over the years, I've really had to unpack that. But no, when I'm out in my life, I'm allowed to be me. And if a client encounters me, if they see me and that means anything for them, we can talk about it in the therapy, but I'm allowed to be me. And I think that's so important for younger therapists to hear, whether you're kinky or you're queer Mm -hmm. or you're an artist or you have all these other identities, like it's okay for you to be out there as who you are in your life. Absolutely. And one of the things I think about a lot is who decided that this is how therapists need to be? Who wrote the ethical codes? Who were the people who were the founders of our field? And 
created that culture that we still are are wrestling with or thinking about or really basing a lot of our decisions on? And the answer is typically a lot of old white guys. And so I start questioning which parts of this are actually useful, which parts of this apply to me as a, a queer and trans person, as a polyamorous person, as a kinky person, working with people who share a lot of those identities. And the answer is, it's going to look a little bit different than an old white guy 50 years ago who said, this is how you have to do healing work. Absolutely. I don't necessarily buy into that. Now, I will say, like, I consider myself a very ethical therapist. I have a lot of strong boundaries around my work. I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but I am critically questioning and querying actively what does it mean to be an ethical therapist? What does it mean to be a person whose job is therapy? And I also love what you said about the the haircut because it's so emblematic of where people get stuck of, you know, I know therapists who will leave a restaurant if their client comes in and where I've always landed, and this may sound a little glib, but like, you're not that important. Your oh, clients don't you. think about you that much. And I personally, as a client of several therapists over the years, like many therapists, I don't remember all their names. So you good know? to hear, Ray. I'm so glad you said that because that's kind of one of my mantras. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, when I'm worried about my impact or having said the right thing or being overly responsible, it's like, I'm not that important. I'm just not. Like, in mm-hmm. fact, none of us are. I'd say to my therapy clients, everyone is the star of their own show. Think about how much you think about yourself. Everyone else is spending that much time thinking about themselves. They literally don't have the capacity to think about you as much as you worry (laughs) that they do. We're all out here being the stars of our own shows. And in the off chance that this does impact a client and they do need to to bring it to the therapy, they do need to process it, it does evoke something for them. We are so well-equipped to handle that. The message should never be, if that occurs, then that means you did something wrong in your life and you have to stop holding this identity publicly. That's something I want to express to people who are listening is like, you have the skill set to handle this in session. And just like you were saying, there's, there's something about what we consider ethical in our field that isn't even about ethics. It's about the culture in which this form of therapy was created. And somehow exactly. we've made, we've equated that to ethics when it's not actually, this is a cultural phenomenon and Therapy is changing. Like you said, so many clients are happy to have learned about you before coming to therapy with you. And that instills trust and builds rapport. This idea of the blank slate therapist is pretty dated. Most of us aren't working that way. A lot of clients aren't actually even looking for that anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I'm not sure how much they were looking for it before. You know what I mean? It just may have been that the people who created this were like, this is the proper way to do therapy. But Y'all, we're people. We want to connect with each other. We want to feel like we're talking to a person, not a robot. Uh, I want to know my therapist gets me, you know? Yep, exactly. And it's such a good point that I wonder if clients were ever looking for this. (laughs) Like, is it ever something that really facilitated healing? And I don't know. 
I don't know. I know I personally, when I'm looking for a therapist, I'm looking for one that aligns with my values because otherwise I don't feel safe in that room. And similarly, like one of the the things at Practical Audacity, my therapy practice that we do is we are very, very open on our website and all of our materials about what our values are, about who we serve, uh, about being supporters of, of Black Lives Matter, of all of these things that it would not be a good fit for a client to come in who is a Trump supporter. And in fact, we would not allow a client to be a client of our practice who was. And I've gotten an, I won't say online fights, but like there's heated discussions on some of the therapists, like Facebook groups and things sometimes about- Those can be well, nasty. To, <laughs> oh, it can <laughs> get real nasty. So nasty. Ugh. Um but conversations about, well, you're a therapist, you should be able to serve everybody and, and not judge anybody. And my stance on that has always been, I will not put myself personally, our therapy clients in general, like all 400 something of them, and my therapist in danger um, by putting someone in our space whose personal politics want to erase my and our clients and my clinicians' rights. I'm just not willing to do that. I love hearing you say that. I, You're right. There is so much debate about this. Um, I think one of the arguments people make is like, well, this person needs therapy too. And maybe if people are uh, wanting this person to change, it's like, how are they supposed to change their racist, bigoted beliefs if we don't help them unpack them in therapy? And it's like, that may be true, but not here. Not when the bulk of the mm-hmm. clients I'm serving uh, this person's ideas are, are actively hostile toward. And I also think you make a really good point around us being clear about who we serve and, and holding that in a larger context. Um, you know, following the murder of George Floyd, a lot of people started saying like, my spaces are open to everybody without actually doing the work to make mm-hmm. their spaces open to everybody. And that's something I imagine also happens for queer folks that some practitioners or some people might say like this space is open to this category of people, but they haven't actually done the work to prepare the space. And they probably don't even know what they don't know. So that's actually something I did want to ask you about on the show today, which is for therapists uh, who want to better serve queer communities, how do they go about that? Whether they identify as queer themselves or not, because one of the criticisms I've heard from educators uh, is like, don't go out there and say you serve these people when you actually don't, because that's actually more harmful. Like, don't just pay pay lip service because that's what we're doing right now. Yep, absolutely. Um, First, I will say that we need more clinicians who identify as cisgender, who identify as straight, who are not a part of these communities to get educated on how do you truly support a member of the LGBTQ population or and or a, a trans person in your space. And there are just simply not enough queer and trans clinicians to serve all of those clients. We need other people to be building those skills. And the good news is you already have a lot of those skills if you fall within the, you know, cisgender and or straight categories of identity, Um, you have a lot of the skills that you need already. It's really about just applying them in a a different way. 
So I would say some basic stuff that you're going to hear, right? Get really good at pronouns. Figure out what your systems are for getting people's names, the name that they want to be called, their pronouns, their identity from the very beginning of your intake process. Make sure that you are honoring people's identities at every single touch point where they come into contact with you, your building, your website, your social media, your intake forms. Those things are very low-hanging fruit and they make a huge difference. So that's a great place to start. It's also not that big of a lift. Going further beyond that, and this may be a little bit of a a self-serving recommendation, but picking up gender magic is a really great way to start learning more about specifically the trans and non-binary population, as well as different ways that you can support clients of all identities with big life transitions, with identity, with sex and relationships from a queer lens. So I definitely recommend that. There are a lot of other great books and resources out there, a lot of great podcasts. Start filling your feeds and start consuming information that is created by queer and trans people. Mm-hmm. Even just those little hits of those little bits of knowledge that you'll catch on Instagram are helpful, as well as, you know, reading books and research studies and, and all of this. Take the time to get educated. And also take the time to be in queer and trans spaces if that is available to you. So if there is an LGBTQ center that has some programming, like maybe go to uh, a lot of them have like arts programming and things like that. Don't silo yourself within your identity. Like you're going to learn a lot more, a lot faster if you are able to be a little bit more in touch with that culture and people who do identify along the LGBTQ spectrum. Mm. Thank you so much, Ray. I think as time goes on, more and more therapists, I mean, certainly not in all therapist communities, but I would hope that in most, it's kind of expected that therapists would be competent to work with queer clients. But I Mm -hmm. also think a lot of therapists are hungry for how to learn more and how to be better, but don't necessarily know where to start and don't want to get it wrong. So it's so helpful for folks who are listening who are cis or straight to hear these are some ways that you can get started and become a better clinician. So you just mentioned your new book, your first book, Gender Magic, and that is also a great resource for therapists to be reading. But ultimately, it's written for the queer community. It's written, like you said, for the non-binary trans community. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book? I'm really excited to hear about it. Yeah. So Gender Magic just came out in May of 2023. So I'm very excited to have the the book baby out in the world. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It has been a labor of love, that is for sure. But it's a, a practical guide to achieve gender freedom for trans and non-binary folks, for sure, people who are exploring gender. And also, I wrote it to have a secondary audience of allies, of people who are wanting to understand more about gender, more about how to support trans and non-binary folks in their life, rather either personally or professionally, And to hopefully give them some things to think about for themselves 
when it comes to the impact that gender has had on them and how they want to authentically show up in the world. So I'm very excited to be showing people the framework that I have been using for quite a while to to work with queer and trans clients and give them a taste of what that can look like and the possibilities to truly reimagine exploring gender as a part of self-development, a part of self-growth. And what would it mean if we celebrated that both personally and culturally? Absolutely. I remember reading uh, something about your book. And and I think one of the comments you made was when you were, uh, one of the gaps you noticed in literature, in support for queer folks, is that so much of the information out there was was talking about the suffering and the hardship associated mm-hmm. with these identities. And, and you were kind of noticing, but what about all the joy that comes with this? What about play? What about pleasure? And you really wanted to create uh, a book that people could reference that talked about that. Because why is all of the information out there so doom and gloom? Like this is a joyful experience too. I thought that was so refreshing and it makes me so grateful that your book exists because clearly that was, that's not okay. That sends a really um, like damaging message to folks with these identities. If you're looking for support and all of the major literature out there is just talking about how hard it is to be you. Exactly. As a a therapist, I wanted to learn more about the clients that I served. And I was getting so frustrated that it felt like everything out there was truly about how terrible it is to be a trans person. Like, well, this, this sucks. And it also wasn't uh, resonant with my journey as a non-binary person and a lot of my clients you know, yes, there are absolutely hard parts of being trans. We can't ignore the political moment that we're in. Uh, We can't ignore those barriers. All of that is true. And I'm not trying to brush that under a rug. But like you said, what about the joy that comes with being more authentically yourself? What about the connection that comes when you are able to bring your full self to relationships that also see you, respect you, and love you for who you are? What are the possibilities in your life when gender is not this like cloud over your head all the time? And I wanted to focus on what are ways that trans people and non-binary folks and anybody exploring gender can truly thrive? And how do we as as providers, as loved ones, as allies, support people in that thriving. And I think it's a really fresh look at gender exploration and gender freedom. And I'm really, truly hoping that it changes the narrative of how we think about and how we talk about gender exploration and growth. Yeah, just hearing you say that, it strikes me that like, all of these discussions being so heavily tilted towards suffering continue to perpetuate the idea that there's something wrong with this in mm-hmm. a way. You know, like if all we're ever talking about is how hard it is, I could see people on the other end of the spectrum who are like, see, it's so hard. Therefore, it must be a bad thing. And it's like, no, if we see people in their joy, in their identities, like it becomes that much harder culturally for us to say this is a bad thing, you know? 
Yeah. I went to this party at uh, El Rio, which is like uh, a gay bar here in San Francisco with a bunch of my friends. And I was looking around and I'm like, this is the best. This is like <laughs> so much fun. Like people who don't like these people don't like joy. They just don't like joy. I don't understand. Like this is one of the most joyful beautiful, most fun places I've been in a while. And I feel like when, and not that obviously queer people have like the obligation to be joyful so that straights will get on board, but it was just like, we need more of seeing this part of queerness. I think uh, not just for the people who are part of that group, but I think again, when things have been so heavily tilted towards this is all doom and gloom, that that's just not the truth ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I have, I had a lot of those moments. Uh, we just, as we're recording this, we just finished Pride Month and I was out a lot also at, at dance parties and queer parties and all the things. And just looking around, seeing people being unapologetically themselves, that is truly magic. And I'm hoping that everyone who reads Gender Magic, who listens to this podcast, can get behind the idea that the world is better when we are able to be authentically ourselves, free from fear, free from shame. It creates magic and not only magic for the individual, but magic that ripples out throughout our culture. And even if you're, you're listening to this and you're like, Oh, I don't quite get it or I don't understand. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if the ultimate goal here and the ultimate vision that we have for the world is a shared one of we all get to be ourselves. We all get to be authentic and we get to do that without fear and without others or ourselves shaming us. That's the world that I want to create. And I hope that people listening want to create that world too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I want to ask you about the the use of the word magic. You could have called your book a lot of things. You could have said like gender joy, gender exploration, gender freedom, but you chose magic. And so I'm curious, like what does gender magic mean to you? Well, it's got a nice ring to it. First of all, we went through a, a lot of potential titles for the book. So I don't know exactly when I started doing this. It was a, a ways back and I don't know where I got it from either, but I started signing off text and, and emails with, hey, P.S., I think you're magic. And I would send this to my close friends. And what it meant is, I'm sure you've had this experience of meeting someone or having a great conversation with somebody and your gut is just like, yes, oh my God, this person is just magical. And I started noticing when I had that feeling and the friends that I had that elicited that feeling and noticing what brought it on. And it was this idea that we're talking about of they are the people who are just unapologetically themselves, who are excited to be in the world and doing all these incredible things. And incredible things meaning, you know, maybe it's a big, huge thing or making TV shows or writing books. I certainly have those friends. But magical things like you're really excited about your garden. And you are super excited to take your dog to go swim. No, it doesn't really matter what it is, but you are living your life as this 
really authentic, aligned version of you. And that creates magic in your life that ripples out to mine. And so I was thinking about that in the context of gender and just came to the conclusion that that is the feeling that I want to create for folks in my work. Beautiful. Let's fast forward. Let's say like your book is the beginning of this massive, massive shift. What does a world that is like filled with gender magic for all people look like to you? What is your like deep hope and desire for us? Oh, such a juicy question. I mean, I could repeat myself and say that, you know, everybody gets to be their authentic self free from shame and fear. And yes, that's true. But I think the bigger hope is that it just doesn't freaking matter anymore. In the sense, not that gender doesn't matter. Gender is always going to matter in some way, but hopefully it matters as a way to define and express ourselves versus something that is stressful versus something that there are literal laws forbidding you to be or, or to exist. Silly is maybe too light of a word, but it just feels like nonsense to me. So a world in which there is gender freedom and gender magic is a world in which we don't talk about gender nearly as much as we do right now. People are just living their lives and everybody is excited about it. Yeah, a world where we look back on this book and we're like, whoa, why was this ever written? (laughs) Like, duh, you know what I mean? Like, this is so obvious now. Um, yeah, yeah. So not that it doesn't matter, but that it's like a non-issue. Like we are just all allowed to be curious about and explore and evolve our genders. Exactly. I mean, it's like the conversations back in the day of like, are women smart enough to vote or like, I don't know, own property and how we look at those now in at least the US say like, wow, that's ridiculous that we were even talking about that. Yes, I would like gender to feel the same way of like, wow, what an antique notion that we had to have this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. The last question that I want to ask you, Ray, is just about a message for therapists. You know, we there's so many gosh, so many different ways we could really wrap this up. But because the audience here are mostly private practice therapists who are entrepreneurial and Mm -hmm. who are breaking the mold, I want to ask you if you have any parting wisdom for them. You know, if they're seeing what you've done in your career, if they're thinking, wow, Ray is incredible. They've written a book. They have this group practice. They have this amazing online presence. They have this really clear like theory of change that they have developed. Uh, And they're just like, I I want my own version of that. What is your advice and wisdom for them? The first thing is that your authenticity is the key to your success. And that is going to look different depending on your own personal boundaries and how you want to show up in the world or in your work. But however that is, that is going to be the key to your successful business is being yourself in whatever way that makes sense for you. And also being a full human outside of your work. You do not have to make yourself smaller in order to do this work. I think that is a huge, huge fallacy. And to kind of piggyback off of that, you mentioned this clear theory of change and gender magic and writing a book and all of these things. Those things all happened 
because I was willing to invest in myself, right? Invest in business coaching that taught me how to create models and take everything that was in my head and how I naturally worked with clients and combine it with research and really create a a clear vision of the work that I was doing. But I never would have done that if I, number one, wasn't committed to being my authentic self in the room and in my life, and also trusted that I had something to say. So I think that's another big part of it is you have something to say. You have something that's important to share with the world, and you are not serving anybody by making yourself smaller and not saying that thing, whatever your thing is, to as many humans as possible. All of those are podcast episodes in and of themselves, but <laughs> I agree with you completely. I Even if someone is saying something similar or in your mind, you're like, it's literally the same thing. If it's truth, then the more voices that are adding to that, the better. Just because Ray has written an incredible book about gender, if you have something else to say about gender, go for it. The more people that are talking about this, the better. Um, That's so encouraging for folks to hear. Ray, thank you so much for being here today, talking with us, sharing about your book, your own story. Uh, It's been such a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely delightful conversation. That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.